Good morning, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I got to give you a little context because it's been a couple of weeks since, since we've been in this study of Acts. Paul had been, the Apostle Paul had been wrongly accused by the Jews and then brought to Caesarea to give a defense before Governor Felix. The Jews had an attorney with them. They really wanted to have Paul eliminated. They didn't want him preaching the gospel. And they brought an attorney with them named Tertullus. He laid out the charges against Paul before the court, but Paul refuted them with relative ease. Governor Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but he feared that the Jews would protest and maybe start another riot or something of that nature if he'd set Paul free. I said a couple of weeks ago, he totally knew that Paul was, was not guilty, that Paul had done nothing wrong, that whatever situation it was, it had something to do with the Jews' law or uh, their traditions or something of that nature. And he just frankly wasn't interested, but he knew they'd cause him great grief and trouble if he turned Paul free. So he chose to keep him in jail, an innocent man in jail. And that's where we left off. I'd like to sort of begin this sermon by uh, just making a few points here, and it'll help to kind of segue into where we're going. The Bible, this, contains truth, right? Most people in this room, probably everyone would agree, yeah, they'd say it is the truth. But we know that it contains truth, truth about many things, truth about God, truth about our world, Truth about humanity, truth about relationships, truth about living, and so on and so forth. Many truths. We would consider some truths in the Bible to be really terrific truths. You know, those truths about God's blessings, truths about love, truths about joy, truths about happiness. We all cherish those terrific truths, don't we? Well, of course, all people love the terrific truths of the Bible, even those who do not know Jesus in a saving way. And some would contest, well, you know, it's impossible for someone who, that does not have the Holy Spirit to understand, understand biblical truth. That's not exactly the way you ought to interpret that, because I think that people can read the Bible and see all these blessings of God and all the wonderful things God does, and I think they can latch on to those things, and they can comprehend them in some sort of sense and begin to pursue them and apply them to their lives, right? They can do that. doesn't mean they really understand the depth of those truths, but for the most part, most people, 99.9% .9 of the time, love the terrific truths of the Bible. God's blessings, love, God's love, and all these wonderful things. They do. But the truth is, right, the truth is the Bible also contains terrifying truths. Truths that strike fear in people. Truths that cause us to take a defensive position or to run and hide. Now, Acts 24 24 through 27, which is our passage for the day, it features three terrifying truths. We're going to look at each of them, define them, break them down. I'd like to read the text. Go ahead and turn over there, Acts 24, 24 through 27. I'll read it, pray quickly, and then we'll begin to 
examine and study and uh, hopefully apply it together. Acts 24, verse 24. This is where we pretty much left off last time two weeks ago. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to move in power today and not uh, just in those who have been called by you and saved by you, but in any that might be here today who has yet to come to know you. Lord, we pray that you would do a marvelous and miraculous work in each of our lives, applying the truth and changing our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 24 is where we'll pick up. Are you there? And make sure my mic's not too hot back there. It sounds a little loud. I, I, you know, my wife tells me I get loud, and so you don't need a loud mic with me. That's a wicked combination. Verse 24, let's read it together again. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As I said earlier, Felix was uh, afraid of the Jews in a sense, and he put an innocent man, after hearing this court case and all this, he put this innocent man in jail, and Paul was just sort of sitting there in the jail, and which was at what's called the Praetorium. That's the governor's mansion. Apparently, it had a cell block or a cell in it, maybe in the basement, and that is where Paul was kept. And several days after the trial, right? There was a trial that we read about two weeks ago. Several days after the trial, Felix sent for Paul. Okay, Felix didn't literally go down into the dungeon or whatever to meet with Paul. He sent for him and had him brought to uh, some sort of conference room or some place where he could congregate, interact with, commiserate with Paul. And he brought him to this conference room. I don't know what it was or how it worked out to hear him speak about the faith. Now, verse 22 says that Felix already possessed an astute knowledge of the faith. Back in verse 22, we studied that two weeks ago. He already had a pretty, I don't know if we'd call it exhaustive, but he had a pretty serious knowledge of the Christian faith already. And so, you know, I remembered that passage from our study last time, and I thought, well, if he knew about the Christian faith, why did he keep calling the Christian minister to himself? Why did he sort of say it, uh, sort of stay in this cycle of, of bringing him back and forth? It's an interesting thing. I believe the answer is in the middle of the verse there. Felix's wife, Drusilla, was the one who wanted to hear Paul. Ancient manuscripts show that she actually urged, if you read the writings of Josephus, show that, and he's a historian in that day, show that he, she was the one driving this deal. 
Like as if Felix really wasn't all that interested maybe, maybe a little bit, but not really. But it was really Drusilla who wanted to hear more about the Christian faith. She wanted to hear more about this Jesus. She was sort of intrigued, and that's what history says. Why? Of course, why? Because she was Jewish, right? So Paul was Jewish. (laughs) Paul was claiming that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah had come had come and already saved his people, so to speak. And so here she is, a Jew, and she's waiting for the Messiah to come like Jews do today and we're doing then. And here's this guy who's also Jewish saying, hey, he's already come. And so she was incredibly interested in what he had to say. Maybe she felt like, maybe I missed the boat here. I certainly hope I didn't miss the boat. Or maybe she felt like, uh, I need to refute this guy because he's saying some terrible things about my God. I don't know. There's no clear answer in the text. But history shows that it was her and that it had something to do with the fact that she was Jewish. She wanted to hear more about this Jesus or the Christian faith. She was intrigued. Now, Drusilla was one of three wives to Felix. I did mention that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It seems that she was the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I, He was the king who had the apostle James beheaded in Acts 12. So this gal was probably Agrippa I's youngest daughter. And history tells us through the writings of Josephus as well that she was a total hottie. She was beautiful, magnificent, absolutely stunning, gorgeous. Okay, and I don't know why Josephus would have, he didn't use all of those terms I did, but you know, he said that she was beautiful. But apparently she was just a knockout. And she was originally married to uh, Jesus. Kind of sounds like Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus. He was the king of Emesa, which was a territory in Syria. So she was actually formally married. Now, she was pretty young at this point, but she got married when she was about 14 to this Jesus, who was the king of Emesa. Now, here's the deal. When Felix, and I don't know how this played out or how it went down, but Felix actually saw her and the king somewhere, and he said to himself, dang, I got to have her. And so he injected himself into their relationship and led her away from her husband and eventually made her his wife. This is what he had done with, with Drusilla. Now, the parallels... Between Acts 24, this is something I came across and I just thought it was really cool. And I don't know if it's maybe, you know, a rabbit hole, but it's really interesting. I don't think it is. I think it plays into where we're going. But Acts 24 and Mark 6, there are some insane parallels between what happened here, what we're looking at, and what happened back in that gospel. Acts 24, right, what we've been studying, Governor Felix had Paul put in jail out of fear, right? Fear of the Jews, Paul spoke the truth about Jesus, right? He preached the gospel, and that infuriated the Jews. That's what got him thrown into jail to begin with and created all of the trouble. Governor Felix had lured away another man's woman, right? Another man's wife, Drusilla. He was living in adultery, okay? Governor Felix and Drusilla were intrigued, especially Drusilla, by Paul's message and had him brought before them many times to hear him speak about the Christian faith. That's basically a boil down of Acts 24, the latter part of 24. Now, Mark 6, 
King Herod Antipas had John the Baptist put in jail out of fear. Fear of his wife. John the Baptist, what? He spoke the truth about Antipas, about his unlawful marriage, and that infuriated his wife, didn't it? King Herod Antipas had lured away another man's woman, Herodias, right? She was actually married to his brother, Philip. He saw her. She was a knockout. He injected himself into their relationship and lured her away, just as Felix had done with Drusilla. King Herod Antipas had been living in adultery, right? King Herod Antipas was intrigued by John the Baptist's message, right? Remember this? He would go down to the cell block and listen to John the Baptist over and over and over, proclaim the gospel, proclaim the kingdom. Look at these parallels between Felix and Antipas and what's playing out. This is really interesting. And it just goes to show that believers will suffer in similar ways. Like what happened to John the Baptist is the very thing that happened to Paul, in a sense, later on, over 20 years later. Fascinating connections here. And it does play into where we're going. Now, let's take a look at how Paul presented the Christian faith to Drusilla and Felix in 25a. Are you with me? 25a, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. That's how he presented the Christian faith or the gospel, if you will. First of all, we need to notice that it says he reasoned. This is the same style of teaching or presenting the gospel that Paul used in Ephesus at the hall of Tyrannus for a couple of years. It wasn't preaching. Okay? It was a different form of teaching. It was reasoning. Paul had two people in front of him here, not a crowd. When you have a crowd, it, it makes more sense to preach and to proclaim. Uh, when you have a couple of people, it would be really awkward if it out, outlaws. I decided to start sharing the gospel with a couple of guys there, and I maybe stood up on something that was higher than them and began to preach at them maybe from the sales counter. That would be really awkward. I would do it. Uh, I don't know how much fruit it would bear. They'd probably chase me out of there. But you know, what, what I do when I'm at work is I reason with these guys. I talk to them about the truth, and I reason. And so this is the mode of teaching that he used with this couple. Reasoned means to put forth biblical truths and to support them with reasonable and logical arguments. We might call that common sense. You know, the Bible is filled with common sense. It's very nonsense. I mean, it's very nonsensical. Is that the right? Is that what I meant to say? Nonsensical. No, it's very sensical. My bad. Yeah. Our receiving it is very nonsensical. But the the Bible can be. You can reason biblical truth, and you can talk about these things, and and they can be seen as very common sense. If if man is bad and evil and wicked, then the logical conclusion is that. Hell awaits him. I mean, it's just logic, right? And so this is what he did here. He proclaimed the truth in, in this way, like we do in conversations, not like when I stand up here or you do what you do in other situations. Now, what did Paul reason about? We see three things in the text there. Righteousness, self-control, and coming 
judgment. In that order, too. They represent the three terrifying truths in this passage. That's them. And we'll figure out why in a little bit. Now, Paul knew about Felix and Drusilla's adulterous relationship and sin. He was aware of what they were mixed up in, what they had done in the past, what they were maybe currently doing now, uh, not in terms of their relationship, but in terms of how he was governing and the corruption and these things. He, Paul, Paul you know, and this, and this is just a, a great insight for us that you got to know who you're talking to. In fact, Colby talked about that last week in his message when he talked about how to witness to people in these things. You got to know who you're talking to. You got to know something about them if you're going to be able to reason the truth and parallel it with their life. And so the Apostle Paul knew about their situation, knew about their past, knew about what they were doing at this time, knew about his corruption and the bribes and all the nastiness. He was fully aware of their situation. And he actually did what a good minister will do, and that's craft your message for your audience. Okay, what I'm telling you is is that he knew exactly what to speak about with this couple. This wasn't some abstract sermon or these some abstract ideas or some universal ideas here. This was like, you three, I'm going to speak to you about the three areas that you need to hear about because I know who you are and I know what you're involved in, okay? That is really the nature of his message. And, of course, these are terrifying truths. You could say that Paul's, in Paul's presentation to them, in his message to them, in his reasoning, he was, in a sense, calling them out. And we have seen from time to time, over and over and over, just how bold Paul is when he proclaims the truth, whether he's preaching it in front of masses and multitudes and in front of enemies who want to kill him, the Jews, or he's reasoning at the hall of Tyrannus or in conversation with a couple of gals, Riverside and Philippi. This guy was amazingly bold. He was not afraid to point out people's sin, and he never did it from a position of self-righteousness. Because he considered himself to be the chief of sinners. And so he would say, here's what you're involved in. Here's what you need to do about it. You know, he would speak the truth in love. Now let's begin with that first terrifying truth. Terrifying truth number one, righteousness. How would, or what did Paul have in mind, I should say, when he said righteousness, when he talked to them about righteousness? How did he describe righteousness to them? He probably said the same thing. Now, here's the deal. Let me just couch this with this statement. Uh, For whatever reason, Luke is on the move here. He's our historical writer, author, and so he doesn't give any details. He doesn't break down what Paul said about righteousness, self-control, or judgment. He doesn't say. He doesn't define those things. But let me tell you something. This is what's so wonderful about the Scripture. We can know what Paul said just by looking at what he wrote in other places because he said what he said what he said, and he wrote what he wrote, and, you know, And I even was trying to be careful in that, okay, what letters were written by this time? What would he have said, you know, that could be affirmed by a letter that was written at around this time or before what he had said or before this particular encounter? And so we can easily look at some of the things that Paul said about righteousness and these other subjects just by looking at his epistles. And that's exactly what we'll do. So I believe when he talked about righteousness to them because of their situation, 
he may have used something like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, which had been written by now, which he had a manuscript probably with him. He may have even quoted his own divinely inspired, you know, God's revelatory message here. And it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When he talked about righteousness to them, he very likely pointed to their unrighteousness. And in that amazing little truth there's about four or five things that they were doing wrong sexual immorality adultery they were thieves he was he was a thief he stole another man's wife they were greedy Felix was all about bribes they were swindlers you see when he talked about righteousness he was talking about their unrighteousness this is what you've been doing this is how you've lived your life and, and the fact of the matter is, is that the unrighteous will not, under any circumstances, inherit the kingdom of God. And that is the last thing in the world a lost sinner who thinks he's righteous wants to hear. They don't want to hear that junk. You just think about Felix and Drusilla for a moment here. They were unrepentant, unbelieving, sexually immoral adulterers. They were greedy, money-hungry swindlers. Felix was a thief. He stole another man's wife. This is huge. He was corrupt. He kept an innocent man in jail. Look at the corruption. Paul might have been saying, you're unrighteous because of what you did to me, homie. Without the ghetto tongue there. Paul made it clear to them that because of their sin and unrighteousness that they were not in line to inherit the kingdom. But I don't believe that that was all he said to them about righteousness, right? Because why would you just leave an unrighteous lost sinner in that mode to leave them in a position of peril and to not offer them the hope of the gospel? So I don't believe when he talked about righteousness that he only pointed to their unrighteousness, he no doubt pointed to the rest of humanity. Hey, guess what? You ain't the only ones who have done these things. Because he wrote in Romans 6.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did he not write that? Yes, he did. He knew that everyone was on level, level playing field, level ground. It's not just you, Felix and Drusilla. He had to have pointed to the wonderful righteousness of Christ which we receive by faith what did he say not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith Philippians 3 9 this had also been written by then well actually no that was a prison letter so that was a little later but it doesn't mean he didn't know that already well maybe he was in jail so yeah I guess it was a prison letter maybe by then he did do it huh what prison was he in when he wrote these probably this one or maybe it was later right Aaron I don't know. I don't know the timing of it, but the fact of the matter is these are things that he had written to other churches that he believed, that he understood, that he knew, that he applied to himself. And Paul was the kind of person that if he were to point to one's unrighteousness, he would point them to the remedy, which is Jesus Christ, because that's what his epistles do. 
Every epistle is written in such a way that the first half of the epistle points to our unrighteousness and then what Christ did. And then the rest of the epistle points to how we live our lives. And that's just the way Paul wrote. That's the way he preached. That's the way he taught. That's the way he reasoned. If you think about it, this is a terrifying truth in that we do not possess and cannot under any circumstances possess or have or obtain a righteousness on our own. That no man can earn his way with God and earn a right standing before God through his good works, his good deeds, whatever it is that he's doing, his religion, his church attendance. That no man is justified by his own righteousness. In fact, he doesn't even possess a righteousness on his own. This should be a terrifying truth to the world because it says you can't save and justify yourself under any circumstances. I believe that is something that Paul conveyed here to them too. Terrifying truth number two, self-control. What did Paul have in mind when he said self-control? How did he describe it to them? He probably pointed to their adultery again because when people are married and in a marital relationship and they stray and go outside of that marriage, they are not showing or exercising self-control, are they? No. They're not. And so it's likely that he just pointed right to their, here's what you guys did. Self-controlled people, people who exercise self-control, do not allow temptation to grow and become sexual immorality and adultery like Felix and Drusilla did. Paul may have paralleled their, you know, sinful behavior with the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, something of that nature, which gives us a nice list. The works of the flesh are what? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, or idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You know, people who do not exercise self-control engage in all of the works of the flesh is what Paul very likely proclaimed to them. And then he may have juxtaposed them with those who bear the fruits of the Spirit, which is the latter part of the text. They are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Good job, Ian. My son over there knows the text. Probably knows when it was written, the time that it was written, the circumstances, the context. You know those things, son? He's not even looking at me now because I put him on the spot. But it makes sense, right? If you're going to talk to somebody about self-control and you know righteousness and self-control or lack thereof, you're going to go to Scripture and you're going to point out what a lack of self-control looks like and, and you're going to make clear to those who you're talking about you know, unrighteousness and self-control, you're going to make clear to them what the Scripture says about that and what the outcome is, what the inevitable is. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 again. And what was, you know, it's these people who do not, who live in unrighteousness and do not exercise self-control. Because basically, you want to define self-control real quick. It is bringing one's own life into submission to God's word or into the law, under the law. That's what self-control means. Self-control means to take my life and to bring it under in reverence to God's law. That's what it means, to live outside of 
self-control uh, is to live in such a way where there's no, you're not cognizant, you're not paying attention to, you don't care about God's law. And you just willfully just choose to live in a way that is antithetical to God's law. That is to live a, uh, a life without self-control. And so, you know, he's re- again, he's reasoning, right? Look, you're unrighteous because of your life and what you've been doing. You, you, you're guilty of not living a self-controlled life in submission to God's law. You've broken one of the big ten, man, adultery. See, he's reasoning with them, explaining. He's not standing in a pulpit, preaching and sweating and spitting all over him. He's just saying, look, this is your life. Unrighteousness, no self-control. You two left marriages to, to get together. You don't, you don't have self-control. You don't have, Felix, you don't have self-control. You're trying to get money from me. You're the stinking governor. You got enough money. Oh, I don't, man. I'm going through Dave Ramsey right now. I got to get my debt paid off. You know, I don't know what the heck he was talking about, but. I need the money. I gotta get that credit card nailed down, you know? I don't know, maybe he was just trying to do like Solomon and build chariot cities. Who knows what the heck this guy was up to? He never, if you look at his life in the text, in the scriptures, and it seems like he just never had enough money because he was always on the hunt for a bribe. He was always on the hunt for some kind of under the table deal, which is just bizarre. You're the governor. You should have money. I think Paul was just reasoning when they said, look, here's your life. You don't live a self-controlled life in submission to God's law. And you, you're adulterers in these things. Terrifying truth. That, that's a, you think about it, that's a pretty terrifying truth though, right? Self-control. Would, would we say right now that, that we live in a world where people are just really, really good at exercising self-control? Or do we live in a world and culture where it's, not only pagans gone wild, but even Christians gone wild in a sense. I think that's the thing that's, that's even more scary is the lack of self-control and reverence to God by Christians. That's the thing that gets me fired up. I don't have any expectations for unbelievers. I get it. But when I choose to live without self-control in certain areas, that's a pretty frustrating thing. And when we see our brothers and sisters and family members who love Jesus do these things, but that should be a terrifying truth that those who live in unrighteousness and who do not exercise self-control, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's reality. And that's a perfect segue into terrifying truth number three, coming judgment. Do you see how he thread this together? Unrighteousness, lack of self-control brings this. This is coming for you. Coming judgment. What did Paul have in mind when he said this? How did he describe it to them? I keep asking that question. He reasoned that their unrighteousness and lack of self-control, their sin, would not only keep them out of the kingdom of God, but also land them in the tribunal of God's final judgment, which is coming. This This is devastating here. The boldness of this reasoning and message is just, it's amazing. He was not afraid to tell them that you are going to hell. You are. Pointing to that great and terrifying day we read about just a moment ago from Zephaniah 1. That is the day of the Lord when he will come and destroy and punish 
all. That's final judgment. Paul warned them about final judgment. But let's not forget that he was an excellent theologian. He would have also pointed them to the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment that he was bringing. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. How many moms do we have in here that got struck with sudden labor pains and get me to the hospital now, buddy. I hate you too, right? Who? Yeah? Epidural, you know. Epidural has saved me. Oh, you know. Mona Lisa, stupid. You know, there is a time where Jesus will return. Jesus' return and the judgment that he brings, because he will bring and bring wrath and punishment and, and judgment, is a proleptic to or foreshadow of the coming of God and final judgment. It's like, okay, Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to begin things, and then when he returns, he brings judgment and punishment, and then that's a proleptic to or foreshadow of. It's like it begins the process of God coming later in final judgment. And so it's like the, it's like the timer has been set. And so Paul, no doubt, pointed to these things. He pointed to these things so that they would know that what they're engaged in and living in is, is not unchecked, is not safe, and will be judged at some point. Judgment is coming, as he said. I think he looked right at him as he was reasoning with him and saying, look, unrighteousness and lack of self-control, the kind of lives you've been living in, God is coming to judge and Jesus is, is coming back. You know, here's the deal. And there will be a final judgment, you know, like we read in Zephaniah. Here, here's the deal. You two, it's on you. You are going to experience the judgment of Christ and the judgment of the Father in the end of days. That's, that's what you're headed for here. That's what you're going to experience saying to them something of the nature of you, you're in peril. You, this is where you're going, man. Now, is there anything in the text to validate my claim that these are terrifying truths, right? I mean, where did you come up with that idea that these are terrifying truths, Phil? You just make these things up as you go? No, I actually study the scripture. You just, you just look down there in 25B, and you'll see how they're terrifying truths. What's it say? Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix became alarmed. Alarmed is emphobos in Greek, and it means to become terrified. Are you kidding me? That's what's coming for me? That's what I'm going to have to endure? That's what I'm going to have to experience? Because of what I did with this other man's wife and because of my lack of self-control and the way I live and the bribes and all the stuff that I do, coming judgment is coming for me. God, Jesus is going to come for me and he's going to come and judge me and God's going to judge me in the end and the dead will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is for me? Yeah. He was terrified. He became terrified. It scared the heck out of him. Paul's message literally terrified Felix. 
He realized that he was in deep, deep trouble, that he had sinned greatly. Here's what's so tweaked about this. Instead of repenting and trusting in Jesus, he sent Paul away, didn't he? He wasn't interested in salvation. He figured out of sight, out of mind. If I just get rid of this guy, then I won't have to think about it anymore. Kind of reminds me of others in the New Testament who did not respond to their sin or to the gospel rightly. Plenty of examples. I've got some here for you, and they're pretty universal. Unconverted people pretty much do the same things that I'm going to show you right now, these examples. This is how most people, all people, I'd say, apart from the saving grace of God, respond to the reality of their sin and to the gospel, right? How about the rich young ruler? He realized that money was his idol. He did, in a sense, but instead of repenting and believing the gospel, he went away sad. Why? Because he was unwilling to give up the idol. Okay, so I can follow you, Jesus, and and I can have the abundant life and these things that you've been preaching to all these people, but in order to do it, I'd have to get rid of the thing that I really serve, the God that I really bow down to. That's what I'd have to do. Yeah, that's exactly what you'd have to do. I I don't want to do that. I'm out of here. He bounced. How about the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees? Jesus consistently pointed out their hypocrisy and sin. Did they repent and believe the gospel? No, they plotted for how to kill Jesus, how to kill God. How does that play out in our day and age? Have you ever heard of the name Richard Dawkins? What do you think he does endlessly with his life? Trying to kill God off. Why? Because of the reality of his sin, the reality of his immorality. And the best way that he knows how to deal with the situation is to say, to heck with the gospel, that's stupid, I'm not really a sinner. And guess what, everyone? There's no God. That's how he deals with the situation. How do people... Emulate the rich young ruler. They hear about their sin, they're exposed and all that, and they go away sad because they don't want to give up those sins. You see how these parallel with people? How about Herod Antipas? Talked about him a little earlier. John the Baptist had him dead to rights. He uncovered his adultery with Herodias. Boom, exposed it. Even did it in a public way. Wow. Not just, hey, by the way, I know about what you did with your brother's wife and you're living in adultery you know they're in some counseling session it's like he's living in adultery with his brother's wife you know it's like oh my gosh talk about bold had him dead to rights uncovered his adultery with Herodias Antipas knew go look in the gospels knew that John was a righteous holy truthful man he knew in a sense that John was right about his relationship with her he knew it His conscience was pricked in a sense. Did he repent and believe the gospel? No, he kept John in prison until he had him beheaded, didn't he? How did he respond to his sin and the gospel? He persecuted the messenger. Do people not do that in this day and age, in this world? Every day, all day, that's what they do. When you say, well, you know, this is the sin issue and and, and there's a remedy to the gospel. And what do they do? The heck with you, buddy. You're an idiot. I'll kill you. If you go back to the Middle East, they just kill you. They want to hear the gospel there. Don't point out my sin. 
Jesus' followers, not all of them, but many, they realized that following the Lord was too costly, and instead of repenting of their self-centeredness and believing the gospel, they abandoned him. The cost of discipleship is just too great for me. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my normal life. That's what people did. That's how people responded during Jesus' day to their sin and to the gospel. It requires that, no thanks. I'll hang with you for a little bit. I like it when you talk about God's love and those things. But when you start talking about my sin and, and those sorts of things, that's, man, that's really not your business. That's my issue. And I'm really not a sinner and I'm pretty good. And I'm not going to cancel out what I do and, and follow you and sacrifice my life and carry, carry my cross. What are you talking about, carry my cross? They follow for a little while, they, they, they take the things that they like, they apply the things that they like, but when it gets serious about who they really are, that's it, I'm out. Peace out. Do people not do that today? It's exactly, do we not do that at times as Christians? You know, everything was cool, you had me at hello, Jesus, but you keep pointing to how I, how I run my finances in my checkbook, and that just I'm just going to hide it from you. How about the most infamous example of all, Judas Iscariot? He realized that he had sold out an innocent man, but instead of repenting and believe the gospel, he tried to alleviate his guilt and shame through suicide. When people realize that they've sinned against God, they do whatever they can to alleviate their shame and guilt. They turn to Everything else, false gods, false religion. Some of them even turn to the worst case scenario, which is what Judas did. I'll just, get, I'll just eliminate myself. I mean, you see how these are parallels? This is how people respond. Unconverted, unregenerate people. This is how natural people respond to these things. Is this not how Felix responded? Oh, man, that's frightening. Get out of here. I'll talk to you later. There's another example of what they do. I don't want to really hear about that right now. Don't preach your religion to me. Don't, don't tell me about my sin and these things and, and how you were saved from yours and all that. That's all fine for you, but, you know, this is my realm here, and, and to just go away. I don't want to hear about that. Don't talk to me about that subject anymore. Isn't that what Felix did, and is that what people do today? Now, we might be led to think that Felix wasn't entirely foolish, Right? That he wasn't a, a, the, the worst case squanderer of gospel opportunity, which is what we see playing out here. Why, why would we think that maybe he wasn't entirely foolish? Because he said, I will call for you again later. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So we're thinking, okay, well, there's still something going on here. He still wants to interact with Paul and talk to him. And maybe that's just the Holy Spirit drawing him in a tender way. And Well, let me say we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Felix's motive for bringing Paul back was way off. Look in 26. At the same time, he hoped, he hoped, he put his hope and trust in the hope that he would what? That money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Wow. Felix sent for Paul often, conversed with him, but he wasn't interested in his message. He wasn't interested in righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. He was interested in Paul's money. 
Felix was motivated by greed, not a heartfelt desire to hear the truth or to connect with God, we might say. And sadly, this ugly side of Felix is seen in so many today, is it not? In those who want the benefits of God, but not God himself. I call them blessing chasers. Felix was, in a sense, a blessing chaser. And I'll tell you, friends, the world is filled with them, and the church too, right? They come not to worship God and to connect with him, but to get from him. To them, God is a a magic genie, and the church is the storehouse of his blessings. That's how they see this whole thing. They attend and smile and listen and pray and take communion. They write down notes, but their hearts are always fixed on the gifts, never the giver. Like addicts, they relentlessly pursue their next fix, which is another fill of God's blessings. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, they're everywhere. There's entire denominations of these people out there with millions of adherents. There used to be a a guy who hung out in the front of our building out here. My wife always hates it when I tell little stories about things and real experiences. Don't say that about him. Yeah, I just do it anyways. (laughs) Because I want to prove a point to you. There was a guy that used to hang out in the front early, and and when I would pull up in our van, he he would just storm me and say, Hey, 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 Pastor, hey, can I, can I, can I pray for you? And I'd be like, Can I get out of the van all the way first? And he he would say, "Let, let, Let me pray for you, Pastor, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you so I can be blessed. I'd be like, You mean you want to pray for me so I can be blessed? No, 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 so I can be blessed. At that point, Rachel would get in a little close and take my arm because she knew what was coming. She'd pull me in and start whispering, just, 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 just go with it. Just do it. So it's going to be okay. Don't suplex him. Don't body slam him. He, he would literally come up to me and say, I'd like to pray for you so I can be blessed. I'm not lying to you. I, you ask my wife. This is what he did. I'd never seen anything like this before. And so I would say, like, blessed how? How, how would you be blessed if you pray for me? He'd say, well, God will bless me with, he literally used these two terms. God will bless me with protection and provision if I pray for you. When I'd say, so you want to pray for me so you can be blessed. And he'd say, yes, exactly. (laughs) And I would say to him, as Rachel's pulling me close, don't you think that's selfish? At that point, she's like, just just, just go with it. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about, out of the mouth of babes. He would literally, I'm not kidding, guys. I don't, this guy would do this. And, And I'd say, well, don't you think that's a little selfish or whatever? And at this point, he's now taking my hand. And Man-to-hand contact is always a really awkward thing. Okay, so if you guys want to rub me wrong, any of you men in here, just take my hand. It's just weird, right? It's like, is he going to kiss it like in England? 
I hope not. You know, is he going to kiss my ring? You know, like, bow to me. I don't It's weird. He would take my hand. He would just smile. I'd say, do you think that's a little selfish? He'd just take my hand and smile. And, and then he would begin to pray, and it was just really, really, really awkward. And this happened two or three times out there. Did any of you ever cross paths with this guy? Do you remember who I'm talking about? Did he offer to pray for you too so he could be blessed? <laughs> Let me just tell you something about that guy. He, 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 Lord bless him. I actually let him pray for me so he could be blessed. I have a godly wife. She'd just be saying, she, I don't know if she was being godly or just whatever, but she would say, just let him do it so we can go inside. <laughs> it's either hot or cold. You know, let's get it over with. You know, okay, go ahead. And then, Father, bless the pastor and hook me up. You know, I don't know, whatever. Holding a hand, you know. She would, she would do that. But if you cross paths with me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he reminds me of Felix and others. Those who... And I don't know what his mode, well, I guess I do know what his MO was. He wanted to be blessed, but I can just tell you that was, it was, it really, I sensed that it was really off. It just didn't seem right. I guess maybe in his church circles, it's okay to do that. I would never go to someone and say, let me pray for you so I can get blessed. I'd say, let me pray for you so you can be blessed, so you can be protected and God's provision is for you. And I, I want to bless you. I'm not coming to you so I can get something, right? And that's the world. And that's what he was doing. And that's what Felix was doing. And that's what countless others do inside and outside of the church. They come so they can get something. Blessing chasers. That's what they are. Now, in order to guard against this line of thinking and temptation, because it hits all of us at times, we must first understand the nature of salvation or eternal life, right? Salvation is not the giving of heaven for all eternity to people. That's not what it is. It is the giving of God himself for all eternity to people. Did you hear what I said? It, salvation isn't, hey, I get to go spend eternity in heaven. That's wonderful. It is, I get to spend eternity with God. That's what salvation is. It's not about the things you get. It's about the person you get for eternity. See, if you don't understand this, you're going to be constantly going after the stuff. And there's churches in town here that teach about the stuff. Shame on them. You must understand that heaven is not our inheritance. The Bible actually teaches that our, inher and our inheritance is in heaven. It's not heaven. The Bible does not say anywhere that our inheritance is heaven. It says it's in heaven. You read 1 Peter 1.4. Heaven is merely a place God who fills the heavens and the earth is our inheritance, right? Psalm 16, 5 through 6. So when we speak about salvation, when we speak of salvation, we should not say, I have eternal life, I'm going to heaven. We should say, I have God for all eternity, because that's true salvation. You might want to write this one down. I thought this one was pretty cool. Eternal life, now say it slowly so you can. Eternal life does not mean forever in a place. It means forever with a person. That's true eternal life. That's good. That's, that's biblical. So it isn't about the stuff and about the things you can get. We used to have a saying at New Gen, because junior hires are always about the stuff and all that. I get it. I was a youth pastor. We used to always say very 
poignantly that heaven is completely lame if God isn't there. It's just another place. Heaven isn't the goal. God is the goal. There's a great book by, on this subject by John Piper called God is the Gospel. It, it, the, the whole point of the book is to steer us away from trying to get from God so that we can go after God himself. He is the point. He is the inheritance. He is the grand, grandest of all prizes. It's him, not what we can get. The purpose of salvation is to bring us into the unadulterated full-time presence of God where we will enjoy him for all eternity. Now, we must live our lives in light of this truth. It can help to guard us against our natural tendency, which is to long for God's gifts rather than God himself. And don't you think for a moment that this won't plague you. It does. We all get into this mode of wanting to get the stuff. Just check your prayer life and ask what you're praying for. God, would you uh, find that house for us we need? And God, would you do this? And God, I, I need to, I've got a, my, my uh, you know, my, my ankle hurts. And God, I, I need this. And, and help Josie Sue. And, you know, apparently all your relatives are from Kentucky. Help Betty, you know, all this stuff, right? And that's all we do in our prayer lives is just ask for stuff endlessly. Like God's a stinking magic genie up there just going, let me just drop all this stuff on you. You got it. You're asking for all this stuff? Amazon will have it to you in three days, Phil. It's like God says, would you like, uh, would you like uh, two-day shipping on that blessing? Is that not how we treat him in our prayer lives? You see, we're all susceptible to this. It's human nature to want to take stuff and to get stuff. When I think the whole time God is saying, it's me. Not what I can give you. It's me. For how long did Felix play his little charade, calling Paul back and forth, pretending to listen while hoping to get money? How long did this go on? Look at 27, when two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix's little charade went on for two years until the end of his term when Portius Festus replaced him. Poor Paul, gosh. I just thought of something. How was Felix able to keep an innocent man in jail for that long? I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? He hadn't done anything wrong. The Romans prided themselves on uh, the judicial process. They had the most advanced legal system in the world at this time. How did this go unchecked? How did Paul sit there? He'd done nothing wrong. There was no verdict given. I'll tell you how, bribes and cover-up had to be. How else? You read ahead a little bit, and as soon as Portius Festus takes office, he says, what the heck's this guy doing in jail? He's wondering, what happened here? How did this guy slip through the, the loops here? This is ridiculous. It just goes to show that the character and attitude and heart of Felix, heartless Felix, On his way out, Felix could have easily set Paul free. His governorship was over. He was about to step out of the limelight, out of public view. He had nothing to fear. The Jews couldn't do anything to them. What were they going to do, protest his house? He doesn't have power anymore. He's not in office. He could have easily set Paul free. Who cares what the Jews do or say now? He could have done that. 
but he decided to leave him in jail anyways. Why? Because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And you know what? I think the right way to interpret doing the Jews a favor is that he was probably getting money and kickbacks from them to keep him in jail because that's what he was about. Sick. Closing application to believers, Christians. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment of God are terrific truths. These are terrific truths for us, man. They're fantastic. They're wonderful. Why? Because we have been made righteous through faith in Christ alone. God no longer sees us as unrighteous sinners, but as righteous saints, as new creations. We have the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We bear the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when Christ returns to judge the world, we will be caught up with him in the clouds, safe, secure, and ready to reign with him forever. Boy, these are terrific truths for us because we have a foreign righteousness. We can live self-controlled lives. Most of us do at most times. And, and judgment is not for us. We have escaped it because of the marvelous, miraculous work of Christ. These are great, terrific truths, are they not? They are fantastic truths, the best truths. So much so that Paul wrote, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't, when judgment's coming and Jesus is coming to judge, if, 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 if they're not, if they're terrific truths, if these are terrific truths, you're waiting, anticipating his return, and you're, you're hoping it's tomorrow because you don't have anything to fear. That's why Paul just blurts this little, you know, this little statement out like, man, we're just, this is great. We're waiting for him to come. And he is coming, and he is coming soon. And I would exhort you and say, don't. Maybe there's a Felix in here. One who puts off the most important part of your life, and that's your eternity. Don't stall, don't sandbag. You may not get another minute, hour, day, week, or year. Maybe that's what Felix was up to in a sense here. I'll just keep putting eternity off. I know Paul's talking about these things. I'll keep putting it off. A couple of years go by, nothing, nothing's changed. I recall doing that in my early days. Just keep putting it off. I get it was a timing issue with God and all that. But I would say to you, if, if you resonate with Felix, that you have put this serious stuff off just that you would ask God for mercy. That you would repent of your sin and self-sufficiency and put your faith in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. You may not get another minute. We go around because our health is decent and all that and we think, ah, I'm going to be cool. I can just stall on these eternal things. I don't need to really worry about that. Right, now. I'm worried about right now. And I need, you're, you're talking about forever. You're living in a, a vapor, a, a moment and eternity is forever. It's a long time. It never ends. Don't be like Felix and say, well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll listen to Pastor Phil next week. I'll, I'll call him back to me. No, repent now. Maybe you're a Christian who's been acting like Felix. A Christian. A Christian who's been acting like Felix, right? You've been treating God like a magic genie. You've become a blessing chaser. You're about the gifts, not the giver. All Christians do this from time to time, some more than others. God is graciously calling you back to him through his word. Check your prayer life. Check your living. 
how are you interacting with your heavenly father? How? Is he just the one that you just keep asking stuff from? He's graciously calling you back through his word. It's in the text. Forget about the stuff and go to him. He is who and what you truly need. He is your prize and inheritance. He loves you. His arms are open. Just go to him, friend. Just say, I'm done with the stuff. I want you. I'm done with the gifts. I want the giver. That's the correct theology. And that's where the true joy is. It's in having God, not the stuff. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. And uh, I pray, Lord, during communion that we would really, that we would be transparent and open ourselves to you, Lord, and that you would speak to us. Convict us of our sin. You probably already have. May we repent. If we've been blessing chasers, uh, you know, that we've... (laughs) That maybe in some ways we've, some of our sin has been found out. And, and even as believers, some of our sin gets exposed. You expose it. And then what we, we try to hide or, or maybe we try to rationalize. You know, we, we're, we're just not being real, Lord. I pray that you would, you would help us to be real in this moment. That we would be set free from these burdens, released from these bondages, Lord. Restored to you as believers. And may we... Enjoy this time with the giver who gave us the ultimate gift. Why would we want all these other things when we have the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus? Wow. Man, may we, may we just, just enjoy this time of communion, confessing, repenting, and celebrating the finished work of Christ, which makes any and all of these things possible. We have a righteousness from him and all our blessings. It's all in Jesus. May we just go after Jesus. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen.